I draw your attention this morning to chapter uh, 8, verse 16, which is where I want to pick up. If you're following, it's page 15 in the notes, uh, the handout. <clears throat> um, particularly because we have several new folks, I'd like to do a review of the entire book of Ecclesiastes, starting with chapter 1, verse 1. No, I'm just kidding. That'll be impossible, but... Uh, Let's just refresh our minds because uh, over the summer months, uh, several of you have not been here and, and uh, you've been traveling and all that, plus several new folks. Let's just review a couple of things by, by way of uh, anchoring ourselves and getting the right perspective. The book of Ecclesiastes is written by King Solomon. I believe it was written near the end of his life, and it's um, a series of reflections. Uh, maybe that's not the best word, but it's the best one I can kind of come up with in terms of what he's doing. It's a series of reflections on life. Solomon was, uh, at least according to one passage in the scriptures in Second Kings, is considered the wisest man who ever lived. Uh, the problem with Solomon wasn't his wisdom. The problem with Solomon was how to live it. Solomon knew and not only had been given uh, by, by God this tremendous responsibility to need, lead the nation, build the temple, and all that he did, he basically willfully, intentionally, perhaps gradually, because that seems to be the, the pattern in his life, took a step and then another step and another step away from his relationship with God. And he did everything by the end of his life. He did everything... <laughs> That was wrong. Uh, most amazingly, um, he brought in, and they were all political marriages, but he brought in the wives of foreign leaders and then erected in Jerusalem, very close to the temple, altars to their gods. He was, the, he was a, an incredibly wealthy man because he was the king, and at that time, uh, Israel was at its peak. It was, it was the largest and most significant uh, financial and military power in the eastern Mediterranean. Uh, no one could rival it at that time. And uh, Solomon taxed everything. Two major international highways went right through the kingdom at that time, and Solomon taxed every good that came in. And he used that to build... Uh, um, uh, series of palaces, uh, tremendous infrastructure projects, roads and all of that. And you would think, here's a guy who's just reached the peak. But everything he did, as he got older, he got farther and farther away from his relationship with God. And so he's saying, you know, I've concluded without God in my life, vanity of vanities. That's, that's a little phrase you keep seeing through the book. And what Solomon is doing, and I, I think I've written this on the board about five weeks now, that, in case you don't recognize it, that's a stick man. That's supposed to represent a human being, okay? And this is, this is um, God, and the arrow is how we respond to God. A number of weeks ago, we just went through the group, through the class, we just put a list of all the different attributes of God. I'm not going to do all that again. But these are certainly some of the more important ones that Solomon is dealing with. God's sovereignty, his providence, his involvement, his plan, it's real. Uh, God's eternal. He's not confined to space and time. He's above that. And God is all-knowing. A big theological word is he's omniscient, but he's all-knowing. God doesn't need to learn anything. He knows everything. And so 
Solomon is, Solomon is interacting with this. The first part of the book, he says, I'm going to pretend there is no God. And so he says, if this, if, if this is how I live and there's no God, he said, what I've concluded is, I don't have any meaning and purpose to my life. Everything's vanity. It's empty. So now where we are, he's factoring God into this perspective. And what he's saying is, and again, this is somewhat of a review, but it's really appropriate where we are today. He says, I have a choice. I have a choice in life. Every day I get up, I can choose to be a wise man, or I can choose to be a fool. A wise man is a man who responds to God in faith, who trusts him and obeys him. God is the creator, and as the creator, God structured his world uh, based on a moral law. There is a sense of right and wrong in this world. There are things that are right and there are things that are wrong. And obedience to those things that are right, that are part of his moral law, brings purpose and meaning. That's a wise person. A fool is a person who's governed by sin, rebellion against God, and wanton, willful, intentional disobedience. Now, Solomon says, I've lived a good part of my life like this. I should have lived my life like this. And so, again, I think Ecclesiastes is written at the end of his life. I, and if you can sum it up in one sentence, I'm pleading with you. Be a wise person. Walk with God in faith, trust Him, and obey Him. That's what's going to the very last two verses of the book. We get chapter 12 in a couple of weeks. That's it. He sums it all up. He says, This is the way to live. Walk with God, trust Him, and obey Him. All right, now, does that make sense? That's a review. But that's what he is, that's what the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, essentially and fundamentally is all about. Okay? Your silence means you're with me. Verse 16, chapter 8. Let's pick it up. If you're following, we're at the bottom of page 15. When I gave my heart to know wisdom and to see the task which has been done on earth, even though no one should ever sleep day or night, what does he mean by that? This was something I passionately pursued. Day and night. This wasn't a cursory, one time, I really gave myself to studying this. And I saw every work of God. And I concluded, man cannot discover the work that has been done under the sun. Even though man should seek laboriously, he will not discover. And though the wise man should say, I know, he cannot discover. Now, let's stop there for just a minute before we get into verse 1 of chapter 9. What is he saying in verse 17? He passionately pursued wisdom. It became a day and night, if you will, a 24-7 endeavor. In his wisdom, as he pursued it, what did he include in verse 17? This is not something he's talked much about up to this point in the book. That was not a rhetorical question, by the way. That was. I, I think he's saying that finite man really has an inability to comprehend everything mm-hmm. God is and does, mm-hmm. no matter how hard we might commit ourselves to. Excellent. 
That's a, that's excellent, excellent summary. You cannot discover the answer to every question you ask. Jim used the word finite. What if that, and it is, is an attribute or a characteristic of a human being? What does that mean? Finite. Limited. Limited. Limited in what sense? Limited in the ability to comprehend, to understand. Okay. I still in. Oh, an end. Thank you. I'm sorry. I just wasn't hearing you. Okay, it has an end. Good. Anything else about finite? You should think about that. Um, let's let's approach it from another angle. If we are finite, we don't have that written up here. But what what term would we use here? Infinite. Thank you. I'm just waiting for somebody. Yeah, infinite. Yeah. All right. We infinite. What does that mean? No boundaries. No boundaries. No end. Um, perpetual. Perpetual. It's ongoing. It doesn't have a beginning and it doesn't have an end. I mean, infinite is one of those words. The more you think about it the more it is really difficult to understand what it really means. Because infinite, is just there's just absolutely no limit, no boundaries, no end, no beginning. That's God. So if you think of what he's saying in verse 17, I am a finite being trying to understand the infinite. And by definition, that's impossible. Let's take... Another, and it's related to this, but it's distinctively different. If I say we are temporal beings, what does that mean? Transitory. Transitory. We're confined to time. Time is a major element of our life. Uh, This is kind of a scientific way to start to think about it. You and I are creatures of, defined by, and dependent upon space and time. That's just by definition who we are. How would you talk about God in relation to those two things? Eternal. Eternal? What does that mean, Joel? Doesn't doesn't have an end. Does God... um, how would you describe God in relationship to time? A day is a thousand years, a thousand years a day. Good. That's actually <laughs> quoting a, a, a verse in the Old Testament that is quoted in the New Testament a couple of times. That's right. From God's perspective, he's above time. I, I mean, uh, I think I've mentioned this to you before, uh, so if you've heard it before, I apologize, but I think it drives home the point. My major area of academic study of four degrees are, is in history and historical theology. That's what I've studied. My whole life's given to that. I think in terms of time. I think cause and effect. I want to see relationships. I've just finished reading the third book. I just That was one of my projects for this summer. I read three books on, the, on World War I, the cause of World War, because we're celebrating the 100th anniversary of the beginning of that. And the reason I'm saying that is it's a, it's a very complicated thing to understand why there was a war. Because World War I is one of those wars that should never have occurred. Does God think like that? 
does God think cause and effect? Does God think on a timeline? Does God say, well, now, this is happening now. I'm not sure what's going to happen next. But I think probably if I do this and this and this, this will happen along that time. Is that how God thinks? Of course not. One of the titles of Jesus is, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the beginning and the end. I am the Lord, I change not. You see in the book of Malachi, God speaking. God is not bound by space or bound by time. It tells us in Psalm 139, some reflections of King David about his God. He says, God, from the very beginning you knew me. When I was an embryo in my mother's womb, you knew me. Wherever I go, you're there. I cannot, I mean, it's just on and on and on because his God, the God of the Bible, the God that you worship and are devoted to, which is, I assume, why you're coming to a study like this, our God is eternal. He does not think sequentially or in terms of time. He sees the end from the beginning. So every one of you around this table, God's perspective of you, he saw you when you were conceived in your mother's womb, and he sees you on into eternity. He knows all of that. How can the temporal ever hope to understand the eternal? That's what Solomon is saying. So if that is true, if that is true, then which of these choices should you choose as you engage with a God like that? If my God is eternal and infinite, and my God is sovereign, it makes sense to trust him. It makes sense to walk with him in faith. It makes sense to obey him. As a matter of fact, it, it's bordering on lunacy to disobey him, to rebel against him, and choose to sin against him. That doesn't, that doesn't make sense. Solomon is saying, as a wise man, I chose and set on the task and diligently sought to understand the eternal. It was a 24-7 engagement for me. But I found out I can't discover. I can't satisfactorily understand the infinite and the eternal. So what's the response to that? Trust. I'm asking you to really think and consider that in your own personal life. This is what our God is like. And this is what is frustrating to a lot of people. You cannot understand the eternal. You cannot understand the infinite. But he has chosen to tell you an awful lot about himself. He has told you a lot about his plan. And it's all in the scriptures. And he has told you that you are of infinite worth and value to him. He created you in his image. And he sent his son to die for you so that you can have a relationship with him. One of my wife's favorite passages is in John chapter 10. Where Jesus is talking about himself as the good shepherd, as the great shepherd. He says, and I know the name of every one of my sheep. I'm not, that's, I know that we don't get excited around this table about biblical truth and just hide it, <laughs> pretend like you don't believe it, but... If you really embrace that, that is an absolutely awesome, uh, profound, earth-shaking, shattering, staggering thought. The infinite, eternal, sovereign God wants a relationship with me. 
Solomon can't understand the eternal and understand the infinite, but he knows that about his God. My God is interested in everything I do. And it seems to me the wise response is to walk with him in faith, trust him, obey him. That is what brings purpose and meaning to life. Jim, can, can you expand on a little bit? We obviously think in a linear fashion in terms of how we do time, and God doesn't think that way. Right. So how, how does he think? We, we, we do, you know, today, and then we do tomorrow, and then a week from tomorrow, and then the end of our life. But if God doesn't think linearly, how, how does he think? holistically and all-encompassingly. Is that a word, all-encompassingly? <laughs> Dave, he all sees time. it all. He, he sees it all, the entrance. At the same time. At the same time. It's impossible to even diagram it, but it would be sort of like, here's the timeline of your life, all right? You know what a timeline is, don't you? Vertical line, uh, horizontal line. Here's the timeline of your life. Here's God, way above it, looking down. Here's where you conceived... Here's eternity. eternity. He sees everything along that line. And what the scriptures say is, in addition, he's sovereign, meaning, and providential, meaning he's superintending all of the events along that timeline. And one, for me personally, one of the most amazing things about that as well, I'm, I'm not going to necessarily put this in biblical terms, but it's clearly what is taught. God has a plan. God has a plan for this world and, and all of that. And the amazing thing is you're part of the plan. If you've come to faith, you, you, you trust him, you're, you're responding wisely. You're part of the plan. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, when I was in leadership, I did a lot of strategic plans and put all the tactical and, and uh, uh, operational objectives and go, all that stuff. God has all of that. He has a master strategic plan. I mean, I, you know, I, that's not in the Bible, but the plan is all centered on redemption. And that redemptive plan is centered on Christ, his first coming, first advent, the cross, his second advent, where he's going to bring evil to its end. And the amazing thing is that you and I are part of that plan. We're part of what he's doing now as we represent him, but we're also part of the plan because when the second advent occurs and the kingdom is established, we're going to be part of it. The New Testament keeps encouraging us again and again and again. You are citizens of the new kingdom. Live that way. And when you start to understand what God, who God is, what he's doing, and that you have a part in the plan, you don't have the exhaustive under. I have absolutely no idea what tomorrow's going to bring. No idea whatsoever. I mean, I have plans for tomorrow, but I don't know. It's probably true for all of you. I mean, I... When I was in leadership, I lived my life in 15-minute blocks. That's how my secretary would make appointments for me. Okay, how many 15-minute blocks do you need? That's what you would ask people on an appointment. Well, anyway, I'm saying that. God consistently and almost regularly and routinely and relentlessly always interrupted my plans. Does that ever happen to you? I mean, that's the way it, you have this detailed plan. It's on your, your, your smartphone, you know, but... You go back and look over the last week. I'll bet every single one of you, your day didn't look like you had it planned on your calendar. Because God, God has the right to interrupt your day. Now, the reason I'm saying all that is because this builds an enormous amount of confidence in my life that my God knows what's going on. 
I don't know the future, but he does. That's why, you know, the, the, I know, I know you know this, you, know, you read the news and at least to some extent watch the news and TV or whatever, however you get your news. I mean, this is kind of a disorienting time right now. A lot of things are starting to come apart. The post-World the post-Cold War order is starting to collapse. And the post-World War I, which was reinforced in World War II, Middle Eastern order is coming apart. And that's unsettling because we don't know what's this going to mean. What's, going, what's it going to be like in five years? I have no idea. I read a book this summer by a guy named George Friedman. The title of the book is The Next Hundred Years. I mean, it's an audacious book. I mean, here's this guy. He, he, taught, he goes out 70 years. And you know what he says? The leading power 70 years from now in Europe is po- going to be Poland. I mean, you know, when you're out 70 years, I lose a lot of confidence in the book. <laughs> But it's intriguing how this guy, he's, he's, he's a big guy. He's well-known. Corporations bring him in at fabulous consulting freeze to help them understand what the next two years are going to look like. And they pay, they pay him $150,000. Some corporations are able to do that. But I serve a God who knows the future. Solomon is saying, I can't solve the infinite and the eternal but I can trust him look at verse 1 where I have taken all this to my heart and explain it that righteous men wise men in their deeds are in the hand of God isn't that a great statement what better place for safety and security and comfort and certainty at being in the hand of God. And I trust that every one of you around this table can say, yes, I've made that decision of faith. I'm in the hand of God. I don't know everything. I don't have the infinite, eternal understanding of things as my God does, but I know him, and I trust him. <clears throat> Man does not know whether it will be love or hatred, anything awaits him. It is the same for all. There's one fate for the righteous, and one fate for the wicked. One fate for the good, one fate for the clean, one fate for the unclean. What fate is that? Death. Death. One thing we know is everybody's going to have to meet the exact same fate. One who sacrificed and one who's not sacrificed. As the good man is, so is the sinner. As the swearer is, so is the one who's afraid to swear. There is an evil in all that is done under the sun, verse 3, and that is one fate for all men. Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil and insanity in their hearts throughout their lives. Afterwards, they go to the death. All right, now. It's interesting what he does. He lays out this enormous task of wisdom, seeking to know God. The best conclusion I've reached is the place of safety and security is in the hands of God. But that doesn't mean that I'm absolved from death. Death is still a part of life. And it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter how righteous you are you're still going to die. 
So you go from these lofty, majestic thoughts of wonderful doctrine and theology back to the grind, but I'm still going to die. So how do you square these two? That's kind of where he's, he's at now. The rest of this section into chapter 10, he's going he's gonna to talk about, all right, I trust my God, and I'm in that safe, secure place, I'm in his hand, but I'm still going to die. How do I live my life then? All right, now, I want to make sure you're with me. Do you understand what he's doing here? He goes from these lofty theological thoughts back down to the practical. So it's like he's asking, okay, now how do I live my life? If this is how my God is, and this is the way I've chosen to live, I'm still going to die. So do I walk around day after day after day with a frown and sorrow and an upside down smiley face consistently, day in and day out? Cultivate misery and despair because I'm going to die. I think some Christians have chosen, thinks that they think that's their calling. How do I exhibit misery and despair for all the world to see? I studied under a man when I was in seminary, um, and he was just one of those guys. He would every time we were with him, he would make one of these shocking statements. Then you'd go back to your home and think about it for the next week. <laughs> but he, he was, his name was Howard Hendricks, and he said, um, you know, I'm really convinced, man, that when we get to heaven, God is going to look a lot of us straight in the eye and say, you know, I really wanted you to enjoy it more. That's what Solomon's getting at here. Even though we know who God is, know that he's in control, all the things we just talked about, and yet I'm still going to die. Response still is, as I walk with him in faith, and I trust him, and I seek to obey him, I want to have joy in my life. I don't want to enjoy the things God gives me. I want to enjoy my family. I want to enjoy my property. And, and you know, he's a lot of what he talks about is an agricultural society. I want to enjoy my farm. <laughs> he doesn't quite say it that way, but in the Midwest, that's how we have to talk. I want to enjoy my cattle and feedlot. I want to, I want to enjoy the good things of this life because they're gifts from God. So you have this, my goodness, eternal, lofty theological thought, but the practical in the temporal, space-oriented time that God has given me, I'm to enjoy it, because it too is a gift from God. I really hammer this with my students. Enjoy every aspect of your life. If you've made this commitment, enjoy every aspect of your life. And so he says, now he, begin, now he begins to transition from these amazing theological thoughts down to the practical stuff. How does this affect how I live? For whoever is joined with the living, there's hope. Surely a live dog 
is better than a dead lion. <laughs> you have no idea how penetrating that was in the ancient world. The most repulsive animal in the ancient world was a dog. That's hard to believe, isn't it, in the United States of America? How many of you have a pet dog? Virtually no one in the ancient world had a pet dog. Dogs were the scavengers of the Middle East. Dogs, dogs, were, uh, dogs were like squirrels today. <laughs> really. I mean, they're just... Somebody near us, walnuts are now reaching fruition, you know. And I'm telling you, this, I think it was uh, Saturday, I was out a little bit in the yard. I think I saw five squirrels burying walnuts in my yard. Why are they doing that? They are nothing but a rat with a bushy tail, and they're just repulsive. Well, that's the dog of the ancient world. And a lion, a lion was considered a, a majestic. You know, many kings of the ancient world had as their symbol the lion. So he makes this just absolutely shocking statement: a live dog is better than a dead lion. To be alive is a good thing. For the living know they will die, but the dead do not know anything. Like duh. Nor have they any longer reward for the memories forgotten. Indeed, their love, their hate, their zeal have already perished. They will no longer have a share in all that's done in the sun. Now, again, as we've talked many times, these are like proverbs. It's like a proverb. But the truth of the proverb, if you sum it all up, verse 4, 5, and 6 is, life is a gift from God. Enjoy it. Embrace it. To wish you were dead, is, that's, that's not perspective God wants you to have. So therefore, verse 7, go then, eat your bread in happiness. Drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God has already approved your works. Let your clothes be white all the time. Let not oil be lacking on your head. That doesn't mean anything to you today, but oil was kind of like hygiene, because in a very dry, arid climate, which is, is what the Middle East is, you would, you would use oil to keep your skin from drying and cracking. That's what he's saying. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he's given you under the sun. For this is your reward in life, in your toil, in which you have labored under the sun. Enjoy life. You can't figure everything out. You cannot know the infinite and the eternal. But you can know these are good gifts from a good God. Enjoy them. Life is better than death. The, the most joy-filled person on planet Earth should be the person that walks with God. I, that's worthy of being repeated. Let's see if I can remember what I said. The most joy-filled person on Earth is the person who walks with God. <clears throat> I mean, I don't know... You look at 7, 8, and 9, they're all the common ordinary things of life. Eat, drink, clothing you wear, daily hygiene, being with the love of your life. Enjoy it. As he says in another part, and he'll say it coming up, these are good gifts from a good God. You shouldn't feel guilty about loving your wife, playing with your kids, working in your garden, eating a good meal. Don't feel guilty about that. It's a it's a, it's a good thing from God. Enjoy it. My uh, 
assistant's niece had cancer growing up, had a baby recently that had intestines outside. And then mm. her nine, they got through that, and her nine-year-old has cancer right now. And, you know, she's feeling now that she's not a good person because mm. God wouldn't do this to her. Oh, goodness. You know, and she's openly said that. And, you know, earlier you said, you know, you should put your faith in God, but when someone's been dealt that, how do you, you convince another one? It's a real simple question. That's not. <laughs> <laughs> um, there are there are so many levels of dealing with a question like that. I mean, there's the big theological, doctrinal level, but. You know, at the the very basic, practical level, um, we are never going to be able to satisfactorily explain why some families go through what your assistant niece, her relative niece, her. There's no satisfactory explanation of that. You can't explain it. Um, However, I think, uh, and I have, I have talked this way to many families and individuals who faced a terrible tragedy, a shocking development in their life or whatever, like a child getting sick or husband getting cancer and dying or something like this. That's just so horrific to imagine. It isn't. It isn't because she is not being good enough and God's therefore punishing her or um, anything like that. That is, a, that, is, that is something that the scriptures seem to t- reject that. Don't think like that. If you remember Jesus, if you don't mind, let me tell this story from the gospel. Jesus and his disciples are in Jerusalem and there's a man who, who has been an uh, invalid most of his life. And the disciples say, Jesus, who sinned, that man or his parents? You remember Christ's response? That's the wrong question. That's the wrong question. That has nothing to do with it. And his response is, the glory of God is going to be magnified in that man. And then the rest of the chapter explains what happens. It's an incredible passage. What I've said is, I can't explain this, but I do know this. The Lord Jesus Christ experienced pain, suffering, in an unimaginable way, the cross and all that goes with that, to eradicate suffering and evil from this world. Put it another way, God became a victim of evil to eradicate evil. And then I have often quoted uh, the lyrics of an old hymn of the church, but it basically goes like this. No, you don't want me to sing it, so I'll just say it. No one understands like Jesus. Does Jesus know what it's like to be tempted? Yes. Does Jesus know what it's like to physically suffer unimaginable, horrific pain? Yes. Does Jesus know what it's like to be lonely? Yes. Does Jesus know what it's like to be emotionally, emotionally separated in every way from those who cared about him, those who he loved, as well as from his father? Yes. (laughs) 
someone like that uh, that is going through something that just makes no sense. Now, this uh, I don't mean to make this sound so crass, because it really isn't. But they have a choice. I can either get increasingly more angry and bitter, or I can trust that my God is going to bring good out of this. And I can't explain what that is. That's part of, in a sense, when Solomon says, I started this investigation, that's part of what he ends up with, as you'll see later in the book. I can't explain all these things. I can't explain why this happens and this happens. But I do know what my God is doing. And, I mean, again, that is so, that's almost, like I said, a crass way to put it. But this gal... I don't want her to become more angry and bitter toward God. I want her to trust God that through this, God's going to bring things that ultimately will be good. That's having an eternal perspective about things. Does that make it easy? No, it doesn't make it easier. My, I told you about my brother-in-law, who Tim, and uh, I just I call him now. Every every three or four weeks, I call him and we we talk. He's just suffering terribly. He's dying of a very rare disease. And I just talked to him last Thursday. Uh, excuse me, last Tuesday morning. And I mean, the guy's crying. This is the day he does his Tuesday. So the day he does his steroids. He takes twelve steroid pills. And it knocks him out for 36 hours. Unbelievable pain, constant diarrhea during that. That's every single day. Plus, I mean, the pain he lives with, his kidneys are functioning at 18%. And he's filling up with fluid. I mean, you know, just terrible thing. And, and, I mean, we, we prayed over the phone and everything. And Tim, Tim is beyond. Tim is beyond asking why, which is really good. Why did this happen? He and Karen, he retired. He and Karen were planning a whole bunch of things for retirement. None of that's going to happen. Tim's going to die. And he may be dead before Christmas. But Tim is beyond that. Why? Now he's saying, I want, he said this to me after we were done praying, Jim, just pray that my life counts for the remaining months I have. How How can it count? He, he can't get out. He can't do anything. So what do you say to him? Well, I don't know. I don't know what to say to somebody like that. But I say, you know, Tim, there's so many ways in which you, you are being a witness by how you're reacting to these things, how, how you respond in front of your grandchildren. He has, he has several grandchildren that live in the Lancaster area where he lived, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, where he lived. His wife, who is basically now given to just his caregiver, all of those things. Because Tim has a, Tim has a choice to become angry and bitter, or to, in some way, God is going to bring eternal good out of this. And Tim's made this choice now. And I, I mean, it's like exploring the infinite and the eternal. I can't understand it, but God does. So we use words like God permits this, God allows this. For some greater purpose. Do we know what that purpose is? Sometimes we might, but probably most of the times we won't. You know, with Jim, we talked about Jim lost his first wife to cancer. 
And I'm sure you went through all those emotional, it was hard, why, you're angry, you're bitter, I mean, all those things. I actually had that binary decision to make. I could either be, I used the exact same words, I can either be bitter and angry about this, or I can believe that God's going to bring some good out of it. If I choose the bitterness, it's going to destroy me. If I choose mm. the positive, mm. maybe God will be glorified. Mm. Praise the Lord. You're willing to share that, because I mean that, we 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 have that choice, and uh, you know, I don't, you know, I don't know what else to say in a situation like that. It would be it would be so so inadequate and really morally wrong for her to say, you know, I'm not good enough, and God is punishing me for this. I don't think that's the right conclusion for her to reach. Yeah. Oh, I just had a thought, not a question for you, because you. Tipped it off in my head that I heard um, Tim Keller said before. You know, we don't know why mm. this happened, why God allowed it, but it can't be because He doesn't care. Mm. Because looking at Jesus, you see that He cares. Mm. Exactly. That's, that's exactly right. Um, my question is, um, like in light of this conversation, and also in light of this, are, is joy and happiness the same thing? Well, you guys are. Really giving simple questions here today. Um, biblically uh, speaking, uh, no, no, really not. I don't think uh, this is not out of a theological dictionary kind of answer. But happiness is how we respond to circumstances. Joy is how we respond to God. In other words, happiness goes with the roller coaster of life. Someone one time said, "I hope I can get this." Right. Happiness depends on happenings. And if your happenings don't happen to happen the way you happen to want your happenings to happen, you are unhappy. And I can't say that again. again. No. I was lucky I got it out. But it's so, you know, as as a, a biblical term, happiness isn't used very often. It really isn't. Joy is used a lot. Because joy, it's one of the fruit of the Spirit. Joy is a response not to a circumstance. It's a response to God. Joy is a response that flows out of our trust in God. So in, in joy, can there be pain? Can there be questions? Can there perhaps be tears? Yeah. Um, my grandmother, uh, she died when she was 84, really quite a few years ago now she's been gone. But when I was growing up, um, my grandfather, her husband, uh, died of a kidney disease. Today, he would have lived a long life because it was very treatable. But back in the 60s, early 60s when he died, it wasn't. They, they didn't know how to deal with it. But anyway, he died a horrible death, just, uh, just a terrible death. They had to refinance their house twice because, you know, it wasn't anything like Medicare or anything like that at that time. It was extremely expensive, the medical care he needed. Uh, she lost her first son to pneumonia, which is, I mean, typically today, uh, that's something that can be dealt with uh, fairly easily. Uh, and, I mean, just, just hardship after hardship after hardship. But my, I never... Honestly, I never remember walking into my grandmother's house when she wasn't smiling. And she, would, she was one of those women that constantly quoted scripture. That's joy to me. 
I saw her, I mean, I saw her in agonizing pain because of what was happening to her husband and my grandfather, and I saw her with tears, but there was that continual confidence and trust in God and that joyful expression that would almost beam when you were around her. I, there's not, that's the only explanation is supernatural. That's not a natural explanation, a natural response. So that's a long answer to your question, Andrew. And I think there is a difference. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, page. Remember that list in Galatians 5? It's a supernatural, something that the Spirit of God produces in our lives. Wow, this has been deep today. <laughs> shall we go on or shall we call it quits for today? Um, if Let's just continue as he just reflects on all this in verse 10. Whatever your hand finds to do, verily, uh, that's how my translation, do it with all your might. For there's no activity or planning or wisdom in Sheol when you're going. Sheol is the grave. It's not hell. Sheol is the grave. Why well, so under, under the sun? And he goes on. He just continues. Remember, under the sun, he's observing. I saw that the race is not to the swift, the battle is not to the warrior, neither is bread to the wise, nor wealth to the discerning, nor favor to the men of ability, for time and chance overtake them all. Time and events overtake them all. What is another way of saying that? Again, this is it's like a proverb. Five scenarios. The race is not to the swift. The battle is not to the warrior. Bread is not to the wise. Wealth to the discerning. Favor to the ability, men of ability. Because time and chance or events overtake them all. Well, I think it speaks to the sovereignty of God. That is, as much as we'd like to think we're, we're controlling there's much about life that we just do not have control mm. over. Mm. It's in God's hands. The time and events are in God's hands. Because every, and again, it's not that these things we don't affirm. Competition is healthy. There are, we live in a fallen world, so battles are going to occur. And on and on and on. But all of this in the, is in the hands of God. And we know that's true because look at the next verse. Moreover, man does not know his time. Like fish caught in a treacherous net, birds caught or trapped in a snare. So the sons of men are ensnared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. You and I are not in control. We think we are, and we want to be. But God is ultimately in control. So if that's true, which one of these characterizes my response? And it's, I mean, it's, it's almost bringing us back 
down to the significant applicational level of living. <laughs> All of these lofty, wondrous, doctrinal and theological thoughts about God. But one of the very practical consequences of that is I am really not in control. Does that mean I don't plan? No, that's not what it means. Does it mean I don't? What it means if the response of the wise person is walk with God in faith, trust him, and obey him, Solomon's given us one of the reasons, because he's in control. I want to think I'm in control, but I'm not. God is done. Why do you think if in the passage it's arguing for sovereignty, then the English translation would use the word chance? Some translations have, instead of the word chance, like events. Uh, as an English word, chance has a randomness to it. And there is no such thing as randomness when it comes to God. All right, let's, uh, we're, we're really almost done with this section. But let me, let me conclude this morning with, uh, or actually it's afternoon now, with a little section 13 through 16. And, and we'll reflect on that and then we'll be done. Also, this I came to see as wisdom under the sun, and it impressed me. There was a small city with a few men in it, and great king came to it, surrounded it, constructed large siege works against it. Does that make sense? Kind of get the picture? But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he delivered the city by his wisdom. Yet no one remembered that poor man. So I said, wisdom is better than strength, but the wisdom of the poor man is despised, and his words are not heeded. What in the world is that all about? Okay, again, that wasn't rhetorical. I'm kind of asking you to think about that. What, what do you, what do you think is, um, what do you think is going on here? Well, I think he's again making the case for choosing the wise path and seeking wisdom in life, and he uses a, the construct of a of a city that could have been destroyed, but the city and its people were saved because somebody acted. Out of wisdom, Actually. as opposed to impulse or whatever. Okay. Wisdom is better than strength. First part of verse 16. We got that. No problem. Understand it. But what about the second part? But the wisdom of the poor man, the man who saved the city, is despised. Without and his words are not heeded. What does that mean? Without the trappings of all the elements of success that are obvious to this man doesn't possess them. They're not recognized like the man who does possess them because they esteem him maybe more for what he has than what he offers in the way of wisdom. Okay, so they listened to him in the advice and counsel he gave in how to save the city. But then once the city was saved, they forgot all about him. Yeah, 
So that's tremendous insight into the human condition. Wisdom is better than strength. Amen. But sometimes a very wise man, a poor wise man, who gives incredibly valuable counsel and people follow it, once that crisis is over, forget it. It makes no lasting impact in how they live their life. So you turn that all around. Fundamentally, human beings are basically selfish and self-centered. Save me, rescue me, deliver me, and I'm probably not going to remember what you did. That happens a lot, doesn't it? People turn on you. You do some really, really, really good things that benefit the whole, and then they turn on you. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So it's, again, I mean, it's one of those things, oh my goodness, this is depressing, but Solomon is, he's being very upfront and very almost callously and brutally honest about what happened. But you can attach a corollary to that. But God is never like that. God is never a fair-weather friend. God is always there, always dependable, always trustworthy. Many, many, many years ago, my mentor, he was, when I was still in Pennsylvania, the guy who really got me straightened out in 1972 with the Lord, just a man of immense influence in my life. After I'd made the decision to go um, to seminary and on to more graduate school and all that stuff, but anyway, he said, Jim, uh, he, he said one guy who said, I think I've told you, he's one guy who said to me, Jim, your business is not change people, that's God's business. Just be faithful. But he also said something else to me. He said, Jim, be really, really, really careful. Be really, really careful in how much you trust people as counselors and advisors and friends and supporters because remember something. Humans will always let you down. But God never will. Now that, that that's kind of crass. I mean, you know, here's Ty. He's becoming a friend of mine. Should I not trust him? No. Well, that's not what it means. It just means over time, human beings are going to disappoint you. They're going to let you down. They may hurt you. God will never let you down. God is not, he is, he is a consistent friend, always faithful, always trustworthy, always dependable. So Solomon is saying, in this kind of a situation, the guy who saved the city, in a short while, everybody forgot it. But God didn't. So we've kind of gone from the, the, inestimable heights of thinking about God to the practical way of living through some of these aspects of life. But that's the value of the wisdom literature of the Bible. And we're almost done with this book. In the next week or two, we're going to finish it. Next week, we'll, chapter 10, we go through very, very easily. Chapter 11 is about old age. 
which at 67 years now, that's how old I am, has enormous relevance to me. And then there's a the conclusion to the book. So here's what I've decided. When we're done with Ecclesiastes, we'll go back to the New Testament and study Philippians. Would that be all right? I mean, even if it isn't all right, that's what we're going to do. But I just wanted to kind of give the illusion of participating in my decision. But it's a, it's, it's a natural transition because Philippians is a book filled with the word joy. And it is a book that has a real practical wisdom-like dimension to how we live our lives. And so I thought that would be a good one to study. I'm going to pray here, and then we'll get on with our day. Father, thanks for our time today. Thanks for the good questions, good interaction, good response as we think and apply the things of God to our lives. I pray for this uh, young, I'm assuming she's young, but this family that uh, has experienced so much heartache and sickness and disease and cancer and all of this. Um, I have no idea about the spiritual condition or anything about this family. But, Lord, I would ask you to um, give this family, this gal particularly, that capacity to choose to trust you and not become angry and bitter. Um, I believe that is a response that would be honoring to you and that would be an important one for this gal to make. So I trust her to you and really commit her to you. These are the realities of a fallen world where those kinds of things sometimes happen. Rarely can we answer the question, why did it happen? But how we respond is what's really important. I pray for any of the other special needs or things that uh, may be in the hearts of the guys here that were not asked or were not discussed, but help to give comfort in each area. Thank you for your presence with us. Thank you for the Lord Jesus. We ask um, you to continue to help us in all we do and all we say to represent him well. So we ask this in the name and the authority of your son. Amen. See you next week. Lord willing.